This is an ABC podcast. Stories that are tough and joyful, heartbreaking and beautiful, confronting and worth it. Why, I'm glad you asked. Hi, I'm Kate Evans and this is a summer extra edition of The Bookshelf with a novel written when the author was only 17. That's Layla Motley's Nightcrawling and another whose title can be a cry of pain or an exclamation with humour in it. That last example is from New Zealand and the writer is Becky Manawatu, whose background is both Maori and Pakeha. Her novel is called Away. And why don't we begin with that one? Becky Manawatu, thanks so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Kia ora. Thank you for having me, Kate. Tell us about the name of your novel, what the word is and what it means. The title Owe is a word that can be used to describe distress or grief, to cry. It also means to cry or wail, but also it's used as a word that's just put at the end of the sentence to say, like, oh, my God, like just an interjection, really, like a noise that's like a cry. But it can be used. um, Interestingly, Māori would also use it for comedy as well. So even though it's a very sad word, it's not only used in a sad way in the Māori language. How important is that, that link between pain and humour? Yeah, it's hugely important, I think. And it was an aim of mine to try and combine the two emotions because they are intricately linked, even when we're in grief, we can often find the capacity to laugh or need to laugh. Yeah. Well, Becky, let's move away from the abstraction of that shriek of pain or comment on pain and take us into the story that you're telling us. So you take us into a family and we meet these people across a couple of generations and from different personal perspectives. The first we meet is a boy, Ari. Tell us about him. Adama is... He was the character propelling me to write the story. Adama is a pair of innocent eyes kind of watching quite painful, even violent scenes, but he's also creating his own world of magic and fun and happiness while struggling with that. Well, Arama is only eight, as we meet him, eight and a half. Um, his parents have died. He's been dropped off to live with his aunt. But the person he really misses is his brother, Taukari, mm. who is a sort of sweet but rather damaged young man, isn't he? Yeah, Taukari is, he is sweet and he's damaged. Um, but he, I think a lot of his drive is from something that he doesn't realise he's looking for or wants, so... He can't even explain the damage he has. And he's also damaged in a way a lot of teenage boys are. And I tried to be mindful. I'm not a Maori teenage boy. My husband and my son, my son is, and my my husband once was, so they were helpful. But um, yeah, he's he's damaged in a way that many are, but he also has um, compounding uh, stress on him. So that makes it more difficult. So I I actually feel very proud of him, of how he 
managed to stay sweet. And some of that is the people around him and the way that he's learned to cope. But what you're showing us, I think, is quite a complex set of sort of kinship relationships because Talkeri is Ari's brother, they grew up together, but in conventional terms, he's actually Arama's cousin, taken mm. in by the family after something happened. So tell us about that sense of family and what you wanted to show in this book. I wanted to show um, a crossover that feels more true to the way Māori see family and cousin relationships between cousins and aunties and uncles. I don't know that I did that successfully with some of the characters, which is not, it was still my intention though, but um, I think, you know, cousins are your extended brothers and sisters in so many ways. And for me, that was true as a young girl. Um, my cousins were one of the most exciting things about my life and they were brothers. So what you seem to be moving between is this sense of community and family that is quite loving and supportive, but we also do see violence and brutality laid bare in the stories that you're telling. Why did you want to do that? Why did you want to lay this violence and brutality on the page? I don't know how much I wanted to. I think in hindsight, or maybe I would just be ashamed to say in hindsight that I wanted to put violence, so such brutal violence on the page. But I suppose it was, I was compelled to try and make this contrast of the childlike world of Arama and Beth and make quite a stark contrast between this and violence and the repercussions of violence, which is not always just bruises. We really do see the impact of uh, cross-generational violence and brutality and um, a, a lack of agency, I guess. Becky, what can you tell us about why you wanted to write this book? What brought you to it? Um, I was missing home at the time. Um, my husband and I and our two children, we were living over in Germany. Um, that was a basic sort of superficial uh, reason for writing the book. Well, starting out anyway, just a desire for home. I wanted to try and tell a, a Māori story. I wanted it to be based in places that I've loved, places that my family is and or was at the time and I wasn't. A big reason for writing this story was to, to look at violence through a children's eyes and contrast those two worlds. This is a powerful, brutal, compelling story. But Becky, what does a book like yours tell us about New Zealand and the stories it's able to tell about itself? I think there's obviously a, a vein of a big theme is intergenerational trauma and the struggles as Māori we've had to face to retain simply our language for a start, but our land, the dispossession of land really causes poverty. When you can't get make your way easily in the world, how difficult life can become. Um, I hope it tells also 
a story about the beauty of our landscape, the possibility and hope that we can heal. These stories of the impact of colonialism and intergenerational violence, these are stories that we're familiar with in in Australia as Mm. well. But are there other books that have inspired you in terms of confronting this often difficult past and the impact of colonial history on First Nations people. What else, what's inspired you? Um, It would be disrespectful of me to not mention Once for Warriors by Alan Duff. Um, My book has been compared to his quite often um, and that can be a bit, feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes because of that deficit story being perpetuated for Māori. But at the same time, Alan Duff's an amazing writer. He really used his story to tell a painful truth of his. So also The Bone People by Kerry Holm is one of my favourite novels and we're very proud to have had Kerry Holm as one of our literary ancestors here. What, what is it about that novel that made such an impact on you, The Bone People? I think it has such... It again contrasts beauty with violence and there's these relationships that, well, the relationships within it, you're kind of very frustrated with the adults that don't seem to be able to step in and and help the young boy who's being abused. And despite that abuse, there's so much love even between the boy and his abuser. Um, It's got a real cathartic feel to it and it is one of the first books I've ever read that used Māori so beautifully uh, language through the book in a way that was so accessible. Yes that is such an important part of the book and it is something that you do as well and so I love the way that you're using Māori language throughout it and not necessarily explaining what it is we just have to work Mm. it out from the context. Mm. From when I was little, I was using a Māori dictionary to try and write my own stories because Māori wasn't around me. My father couldn't speak it. A lot of Māori have a struggle or a difficult relationship, not with the language, but with the shame of not being able to use it easily. And I'm still in classes basically trying as a beginner every single time, but being able to engage with the language means more to me than using it fluently. It was definitely an important part for me to be able to, even if I feel ashamed sometimes when I speak, just to be able to use it on the page, which is where I feel more confident anyway, rather than speaking, (laughs) even with English. (laughs) What other New Zealand fiction should we be reading? What else would you recommend to us, Becky? Well, um, we do have currently two Māori authors and the shortlisted for the New Zealand Booker Prize, Greta and Belden by Rebecca K. Riley, which is a fantastic book. I've read it recently. Um, Kūrangai Tuku by Fiti Hiriaka. I haven't read that book yet. I've just had it ordered, but I've heard amazing things about it. I'm sure that you're familiar with Patricia Grace, and I recently just read um, Baby No Eyes, which is a fantastic story about racism within institutional racism within the healthcare system, partly 
it's about so much more, but it's an incredible, incredible book. Um, Alice Tarfai's Alice in Therapy Land is another recent read that I, and that was long listed for the New Zealand Book Award. Um, that's about workplace bullying. It was a slow burn. I didn't expect to be drawn in at first and then suddenly I was. <laughs> um, Apirana Taylor's Five Strings is one that I read about five years ago, I think, and I still have this image in my mind of this woman, a Maori woman, sitting on her bed, putting on this lipstick, and it is a love story backdropped by um, trauma and uh, and poverty and addiction issues, and there's a lot um, going on in the story. But I always mark a books. I can tell I've really loved a book when I just keep with me one image perhaps and um, this scene of this Māori woman sitting on her bed applying her red lipstick, I've never forgotten that. Every time I think of Five Strings by Apirana Taylor, I just can see the woman sitting on the bed putting on her lipstick. <laughs> Those powerful images are really something, aren't they? I they mean, are. I, I love The Bone People, but The Wind Eater, the collection of short stories from um, Kerry Hume, there's an image in that of somebody going fishing and they get the fish hook embedded in their thumb. And the way that that is described, it's so visceral and so powerful. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've never forgotten it. No, and that's the mark of a good book, I think. You don't have to come away from a story and even be able to tell anyone what it's about. But if you have one image, then you know that that book's achieved something really special. Well, you've given me plenty of images that have burned themselves into my mind with OA. So, Becky Manawatu, thank you so much for speaking to us on the bookshelf. Thank you, Kate. Thank you very much. Yet another argument for why we should be reading more New Zealand fiction. Becky Manawatu's OA is published by Scribe. The next writer here on RN's The Bookshelf was 17 when she wrote her novel. Last year, 2022, it was on the long list for the Booker Prize for Literature. Her name is Layla Motley and the book is called Nightcrawling. Layla Motley, congratulations on your novel Nightcrawling. Thank you so much. Now, you wrote this when you were 17, inspired by something that had happened to another girl your age in your city of Oakland. So what had happened? In 2015, 16, 17, um, a case broke in uh, the Bay Area where I'm from about a young girl who was sexually abused by um, various different Bay Area police officers. And this case kind of consumed our local media um, for a while and and then faded away, as, as many cases like this do. And I was, you know, a young teenager at the time and paid a lot of attention to this case and what it represented about um, young girls and protection and who protects us and who doesn't. And I remember paying a lot of attention to the way that the, the media talked about the case, too, because there seemed to be a, a disproportionate focus on the police officers and the police department and not 
as much of a focus on the harm done to this girl and to the you know thousands of other girls and women whose cases never make it to this level of publicization. So what do we need to know about Oakland as a city to understand this event, particularly for people on the other side of the world? Mm. I mean, I think that um, Oakland often is depicted as either a dangerous, violent city or as kind of a city that is is only recently one that anyone would want to go to. Uh, and I think that both of those depictions are missing a lot of, of what I know to be true about Oakland. Um, it's an incredible city. I've lived here my whole life and it is just full of so many vibrant people. It has a, a really big artists community and um, a lot of nature and just like a, a kind of vibrance and richness that I um, that I think is really unique. And I wanted to really show the Oakland that I'm from and um, an Oakland that is that is nuanced and that is full. So not knowing anything about that reputation, why has it had that reputation as a dangerous place? Um, I think that people often see a historically Black city and assume it to be violent. And Oakland also has a, you know, a history of radical tradition. The Black Panthers were formed here and um, and we have like just a, a really big activist tradition um, too. So I think that part of it is because of that and because people can't seem to see past, um, you know, statistics that uh, are often taken out of context anyway. Well, let's talk about your fictional version of this story. You've created a young woman named Kiara, and when we meet her, the rent is not only overdue, it's about to double, her brother isn't doing anything to help, and there are no parents around. Things are pretty grim for her, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. And I wanted this like catalyst of um, their the the apartment building that there has been in their family for generations to um, to be the the catalyst, because I think that in this era of Oakland, the, the book set in 2015, that it is um, really important that we recognize the, the mass displacement that has taken place in the city over the past decade and um, and how it has pushed people who have been in Oakland for, for decades out um, of their own homes. But help us imagine um, Kiara. Describe this young woman for us. Kiara is 17 at the beginning of the book. She she's an artist. She comes from a, a family that has had a lot of interaction with the justice system and ha- the reverberations of that um, have severely impacted their family and she and her brother Marcus are on their own um, and she has dropped out of high school and is trying to care for everyone around her um, which is often a burden that is hard to bear. Yes there's a sort of grinding poverty and panic even but she still has the energy to keep going and even to keep an eye out for another boy who lives in the apartment block. Tell us about Trevor. 
Trevor is the nine-year-old next door and his mother is an addict and is kind of in and out of, of presence with, with her son. And Trevor becomes um, in some ways dependent on Kiara. And so they, they have this really strong bond and Kiara gets to experience a like moments of childhood through Trevor. And I think she is a, in some ways attempting to preserve his childhood in the way that she wished hers had been preserved. But um, he already is having to hold more than any nine-year-old should. But he's still, he is such a sweet, he's such a sweet boy. Another really vibrant creation uh, you've made in this novel of yours is Kiara's friend, Ale. Tell us about her. Ale um, and Kiara met when they were in middle school and um, and they have this like really close relationship. It's almost a, a moment whenever she's with Ale, Kiara gets to experience, you know, being just a teenager. And that's really important for her. They often, you know, go around the city and um, skateboard and go to funeral homes and get food. And I I wanted to, to give Kiara moments of, of solace and a person um, who who doesn't need anything from her. And so that's kind of what, what Ale is for her. And you mentioned going around to funeral homes as, as if this was something that all teenagers do. So tell us, what's funeral day? These two friends get together and they say with a sort of air of excitement, it's funeral day. What do they do? They, um, they go to different funeral homes in this city and they, you know, they, they walk right in and they split up and one of them goes to find a closet where they keep um, clothing to dress any, you know, body in and um, take whatever is, has a hole in it. And then the other one goes to the, the funeral chapel and gets a plate of, of whatever, you know, food spread they have out and, and takes it back out to the other. So um, it's a, both a, a way to to grieve and also a way to meet a basic need. Yes, because on, on at first it seemed like this is just an adventure where they might get something to wear and something to eat, but you say it also gives them space to cry. Right, yeah. It's, it's this allowance to grieve that they often don't have. Now... Kiara didn't finish school, as you said. She doesn't have a resume. She can't get work. So we see her walking around the city, you know, trying to find something, some sort of paid work. So what happens? Um, Kiara is is looking for a job and because of all of the constraints in in getting a job in in a job in this job market, um, Kiara, who doesn't have a resume, doesn't have a high school diploma, is um, really struggling to find anywhere that will hire her, and she ends up um, running into an old friend at a, a strip club, and um, and that leads her into a situation that she never expected. 
I was really struck by the way that um, other people who knew her and were living in similarly pretty tough circumstances were still quite judgmental when they realised that she had slipped into sex work and doing quite dangerous, um, you know, working from the streets, sex work. So there was, was still a sense that, that this was, what, a step too far? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's so much judgment around sex work um, that doesn't recognise it as a job, gives it little to no respect. And so I think that that definitely is a reality, no matter what type of sex work you do. But then um, I also think that when we're talking about um, sex work on the street, there is the added component of, you know, you can be in way more vulnerable situations, um, situations that are a lot harder to get out of and um, that there is even less protection for. So I think that in some in some ways, the people around Kiara have concerns for her safety, but it often comes out as a judgment on on who she is as a person and and the type of work that she has chosen to do. And the street work that this young woman, Kiara, was doing, and the real teenager that this character is based on, that brought her to the attention of the police. There she was passed around and exploited, and what this meant for her is what plays out in the rest of the book, which is called Nightcrawling. Now, as you were writing and then rewriting this story, polishing it for publication, I'm curious about what else you were reading or what other stories might have inspired you, other books that, um, you know, put young women like this on the page. I think that, you know, there are some really amazing depictions of Black girlhood and Black adolescence, um, like Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward, like Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. Those are definitely two of the ones that stand out to me as like depictions of of girlhood and um, and adolescence. And then, you know, There There by Tommy Orange is a really great depiction of Oakland. I I just tried to get like, oh, I mean, I'm always reading anyway. And so I, I definitely tried to make sure that I was also reading things that might um, help guide me in the story, but wouldn't interfere too much. But what about before you started writing it? Given that this story came to your attention as you were a teenager, what were the the books that shaped you? God, I have so many books that I have <laughs> loved. One of the first books that I loved was Ntozaki Shange's Sassafras, Cypress and Indigo, um, which is like very much a poet's novel. Um, and I, I love novels written by poets. I think they're they're stunning. Um, and so you're, that- you're a poet too, aren't you? I am. I, uh, yeah, I've always written poetry too. So um, I definitely think that getting to, to read books where poets are able to incorporate that kind of lyricism and, and style of language into prose is, is always really special. Um, and then, you know, I've read so many books, all of Toni Morrison, um, I think especially like Sula always stays with me and and influences like the way that I think about writing um, and writing about young girls. Were you still at high school when you wrote the, um, the first draft of this novel? I wrote the 
first chapter when I, a month before I graduated high school, when I was 16. And then I wrote the rest of the first draft, the like first months after I turned 17. Leila Motley, congratulations again on Night Crawling. I pretty much read it in a sitting. And thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much. The impressive Layla Motley, whose novel Night Crawling is both assured and sophisticated. She was speaking to me, Kate Evans, for The Bookshelf. Join me again next time for more books. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.